you are visiting with us this morning, if you're new here, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Colossians over the last several months. The book of Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ is supreme. He is preeminent over all, and his work on the cross is sufficient. Jesus is great, and Jesus is enough. That is the theological point that Paul makes in this letter. And then in chapter 3, he turns a corner. And he begins to show us how we as believers must live in light of this truth. If we believe this to be true, it will affect how we behave. In Colossians chapter 3, we see it affects our mindset. It affects uh, our, our virtues and the way we act in our character. It affects relationships in the church. It affects the relationships and the dynamics of the home. And that brings us to the end of Chapter 3, Paul's rules for Christian households. We've looked at the relationships between wives and husbands and children and fathers. And that brings us to our text this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And we'll actually read through chapter 4, verse 1. Please give your attention to the scripture this morning as I read. This is God's word to us. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. God, as we approach your word this morning, we come asking that you would be at work in us. Give us the right heart and the mentality, the proper attitude of receptiveness as we come to the word. Lord, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. So God, in light of this, we ask you, to teach us and shape us and mold us into what you want us to be. Please keep us from pride. Keep us this morning from a man-centered mindset that worships the creature, man, instead of the creator, you. Protect us from a mindset that demands that you would serve us and meet our needs and measure up to our standards and our expectations. Instead, God, we ask that today we would decrease and the glory your son Jesus Christ would increase. Keep us today from remaking you in our own image and instead change us to reflect the image of your son Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name and for his glory. Amen. So this text in Colossians chapter 3 is a little bit difficult for us. And it's not difficult because it's hard to understand or because Paul's instructions are complicated. It's actually very straightforward. I mean, it means exactly what it says. There's, there's no fancy interpretive gymnastics we have to do to understand the words. But the reason this text is difficult is because of the topic. The elephant in the room, if we can just point it out right up front, is the issue of slavery. And it makes us uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. Let's be honest. The issue is larger. The issue of slavery is larger than what we can comprehensively address today. But we have to be faithful to the text. We can't be embarrassed about what's in the scriptures. And what, so what I want to do today is a little bit different than maybe how we typically would preach point by point through a text. I want to ask and then attempt to answer three questions this morning. Here's the three questions I hope to tackle. Number one, how should we understand the biblical attitude towards slavery? Hopefully I'll give you some direction in regards to that question. Secondly, and this is the exposition of the text, how should we understand this text in its historical context? What was Paul saying? What was he hoping to communicate to those early readers of this letter? And then third, finally, how does this text address the issues in our heart today? We believe that God has inspired his word, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That means this text although not written originally directly to us, is for us. And there is something here for us to learn today. So let's address each of those questions one by one. And my prayer is that this would be helpful in hopefully clarifying what the Scripture teaches, but also in shepherding our hearts to worship Christ 
as supreme. So the first question, how should we understand the biblical attitude towards slavery? Well, if you read the Bible, if you start back in Genesis and go through the Old Testament, you'll discover that the Old Testament law, the law given to the nation Israel through Moses, regulated and allowed the practice of slavery in Israel. As you get to the New Testament, you'll find that Paul and Peter Two apostles, two New Testament authors, both address slaves and masters in their letters. And they don't call for the abolition of slavery. They rather call for obedience. And this raises the question, does the Bible support slavery? Does it condone it? Does it encourage it? This is a pressing and confusing question for a lot of people. And if you publicly profess to be a Christian, it's one of the things that the world immediately wants to bring to our attention. How do we reconcile this? And what makes it especially difficult is that this is a painful question considering our own nation's history. As you all know, and if you were to read some of the history even in this room and in this building, prior to the Civil War, the United States practiced a kind of slavery that was based on race. It was chattel slavery where human beings were owned as property The slave trade was proliferated by the kidnapping and the buying and the selling and the using of human beings for monetary gain. Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And slavery in the new world was an awful kind of evil. It was cruel and inhumane and immoral. And in no way do I intend to minimize that today. We have this deplorable stain on our nation's past. And so it's hard for us to come to a text like this because it's nearly impossible for us to talk about this issue without looking through the lens of our own history. So we need to be honest about that and recognize we see everything through that lens. And that makes this hard. But we need to step back and make sure that we start with the Scripture and use the Scripture to evaluate history rather than using history to evaluate and judge scripture. So we need to start here. We need to start with the text and with its context and with what the original authors were meaning and intending when they wrote. So a couple of thoughts that hopefully will help us answer this question about the biblical attitude towards slavery. We need to keep in mind, first of all, there were differences in cultural and societal norms when scripture was written as compared to um, previous centuries in the United States. In previous ages, think about this, No one was free. At least no one was free in the way that we are free today. They did not live in a free society with the same kind of rights and opportunities. Everyone in biblical times was a servant of someone. Even the king. The king was a servant of the gods or his god. And in fact, when the time in the time when Colossians was written, more than half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So keep in mind, this is the standard human practice around the globe at the time. And this slavery took a wide variety of forms. There were dehumanizing forms of owning others, more similar to what happened in our own country. But there were other forms of servitude that were more akin to an employer-employee relationship. There were some kinds of slavery that were contractual arrangements where there was even compensation and, and and term limits set in place, temporary arrangements. And many who were slaves or servants were skilled as doctors. They were educated and became educators, and they fulfilled many professional capacities. That's how Roman society worked. There were other kinds of servants who were household servants who were treated with honor. They were trusted. They were even considered family members. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the book of Genesis, you'll find a man named Eliezer who was a servant of Abraham. And Eliezer was actually due to become Abraham's heir, to inherit all of his property and to become the new patriarch of the family. Something radically different than what was often practiced here in the United States. The Apostle Paul deals with masters and slaves in this section of Colossians because they were considered as part of the household. So he's addressed husbands and wives and children and parents, and now he's dealing with with masters and servants because they all lived together and had these relationships within the home. Because the same words in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew word ebed and the Greek word doulos, because they both can be used in such a broad variety of ways, 
to refer to all different sorts of arrangements and practices in the ancient world, our English translations sometimes struggle to, to decide between which words to use. That's why sometimes you'll find slave, but sometimes you'll find servant, and like in our text today, sometimes you'll find bondservant. But it's all the same underlying word because it referred to such a broad variety of situations. So not every mention of slave or servant in the Bible is referring to something that was like what happened here in our own nation in times past. So as we begin to interpret scripture, we need to make sure we're not importing, importing something that happened fairly recently and plugging it in to say that's exactly what was going on 2,000 years ago. In fact, the Bible, if you will study this issue out, explicitly condemns the kind of race-based slavery that was practiced here in the New World. The Bible explicitly condemns, for one, hatred of others. It condemns racial animosity and any arrogant spirit of racial superiority. The Bible condemns kidnapping and forbids cruelty. The Old Testament law given to Israel condemned all these activities and behaviors and actually prescribed legal punishment for people who broke these laws, even up to capital punishment. Listen, for instance, to Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So those who practiced slavery in the United States in times past were not only hypocrites in terms of our own governing documents, for instance, the Declaration of Independence with its language about all men being created equal and having rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But even more importantly, those who practiced slavery in the New World were in disobedience to Scripture because those people had been kidnapped, bought, and sold. So there are no biblical texts that justify or excuse what happened here in our own history. Those who have used the Bible in the past to justify slavery here in the United States are bad interpreters of Scripture and worse practitioners of Scripture. So keep that in mind. Secondly, the Bible actually lays the foundation for eradicating slavery. No, you will not find commands to abolish slavery in Scripture, but you will find a progression, a movement towards the eradication of the institution of slavery. For example, the Old Testament revolutionized the common practice of slavery. The law of Moses placed limits on the practice of it. It gave slaves legal rights, and it forbid cruelty and abuse and many other common practices. So the law of, of Israel, as we read it and we see it accommodating slavery, strikes us as going backwards. But in that day, it was a massive step forwards towards a more just society. It introduced a radical change and made Israel unique and distinct among all the nations that were around them. In ancient Israel, this practice of servitude or even slavery was actually an economic safety net for those who were in hardship. It gave them an option to pay off their debt and ensured that their daily needs could be met in times of famine or destitution. And it was even a tool of something like upward mobility. There was the opportunity for people to earn money and acquire property. And the law even commanded a holiday every 50th year. It's called the Year of Jubilee where all slaves were to be set free, all debts were to be erased, and all property was to be returned to its original family ownership. What that means is that Israel was nothing like her neighbors. And what was happening in Israel was nothing like what was happening in early American slavery. So what you find, therefore, in Israel, as you read the Old Testament, is actually the practical application of the biblical doctrine of creation, that all people have dignity as bearers of the image of God. That foundation is being laid. So the Old Testament revolutionizes and reforms the institution of slavery, something that was practiced already and had been for centuries. But then as we get to the New Testament, we find that the New Testament subverts and undermines the institution of slavery. The doctrine of sin, what does it tell us about human beings. It says that we are all equally guilty and we are all equally deserving of judgment. It's laying a foundation 
of equality. The gospel tells us that, that the good news of salvation and life in Christ is offered not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the earth and all classes of people. The doctrine of redemption asserts that believers are one in Christ and that spiritual birth and adoption into God's family means that there is no hierarchy in the church, being Jewish or Greek, male or female, slave or free has no bearing on our status in the kingdom of God. And Paul has already told us this just a few verses prior to this in chapter 3, verse, verse 11. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, racial barriers, religious barriers, cultural barriers, all wiped away. He says, Christ is all and in all. The reality is, is that in Christ... We are all servants, we are all slaves, and Christ is our common master, our Lord. And as the gospel spread and as the church grew, the influence of Christianity and the gospel and this this transformed ethic, this transformed way of viewing and valuing people and relating to other people, it would actually lead to the transformation of societies. The abolition of slavery, for instance, in Europe and North America was spearheaded by Christians, driven by Christian conviction and rooted in biblical ethics and beliefs. So although we do not find any direct commands to abolish slavery as as an institution, we do find in Scripture the imperatives of justice, the commands to humility, a command to love, a command to show compassion, commands to be impartial, and a willingness for all of us to serve others, following the example of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. That is the pattern for us. And so we find as we read the scriptures that Moses and the prophets and Jesus and the apostles were announcing the very principles that would ultimately destroy slavery. It was first regulated, then transformed, then undermined, and eventually found to be incompatible with a robust Christian faith. So when the scripture is followed strictly and consistently, the practice of slavery is immediately transformed and ultimately deconstructed. So... The question becomes then, well, if that's the collective emphasis of Scripture, if that's where the trajectory leads, why does Paul not immediately denounce it, command emancipation, and just give this instruction to masters? I mean, we see an instruction here in chapter 4, verse 1, to treat, the, treat slaves and servants with justice and fairness. But why doesn't he just tell them to set them free? Well, a couple bullet points Uh, Just a couple suggestions. This is not exhaustive, but several different things we need to understand. First of all, it wasn't always legally an option. Keep in mind, the Roman Empire was in power, and there were actually laws on the books that limit how many slaves could be set free. And starting a political revolution was not the mission of the church and would have actually compromised the advance of the gospel by bringing um, too much uh, persecution for the wrong reasons upon the church. Secondly, it would not have um, helped the slaves. Keep in mind, slaves had no legal rights. They had no legal protection. They had no property ownership. They had no way to earn money. So instant change would have brought them immediate hardship and difficulty, as it did in our own history. So the long-term impact of changed hearts, however, would have brought the transformation needed and done so in a way that people would not have suffered immediately from radical societal change. The gospel would come to take root in that pagan society and would, and would bring the kind of change that was needed from the inside out, not from the top down. And third, it was not necessary for Paul to command emancipation to Christian slave owners. It was not necessary morally. Remember that much of what gets labeled slavery was more like an employee-employer relationship. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having a boss and having to do what your boss says. Most of us have those kinds of relationships in our own life. Many today think that any imbalance of power is somehow immoral. But biblically, it's not wrong for one power, or one party rather, to have more authority Then another party. We find that in the family, that husbands are called to lead their wives and exercise authority over their children. We find it in the church, that biblically qualified men are called to lead 
and oversee the body of Christ. And we find it in in society. God commands us to respect and obey the political powers that are in authority over us. And we find it in the kingdom of God. That Jesus Christ is on the throne, he is king, and we don't get to share power with him. So an imbalance of power and authority being entrusted to one party and not another is not inherently immoral. So it was not necessary morally for, for him to command that there be no more servant-master relationships for believers. But it was also not necessary in a missional sense. And here's what I mean by that. The goal and the purpose of the church is first and foremost to make disciples, to see people saved through the proclamation of the gospel and brought to spiritual maturity. The commentator, F.F. Bruce, says this, the household codes, that's what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 3 and 4. The household codes did not set out to abolish or reshape existing social structures, but to Christianize them. You see, Christianity is not dependent on the laws of the land in order to change, uh, change in order to thrive. The gospel went forth in spite of an unjust society, in spite even religious persecution. And many who were coming into the church, flooding into the church, were slaves and others were masters. The gospel equalized them and gave them purpose and life and joy despite whatever structures in society may exist. We need to be careful, uh, believers. There's a warning here for us. We need to be careful of seeing the gospel and seeing the church, seeing Christianity as a tool to transform the world in the way and in the timing that we want to change the world. I probably don't have to ask you to raise your hand. But if I were to ask each one of us going around the room, we could all raise our hands and say, here's something I'd like to see change in our world. Uh, We all have things that we want to see change and things that need to change. But Christianity is not a tool to bring about the change we want to see in the world, in the timing that we want to see it. Satan has a subtle strategy to get us to view Christianity as a means to an end that we desire But here's what happens, is then when that end is not reached, that goal is not met in the way that we want or as quickly as we demand, Christianity is discarded in search of a better tool that will bring about the change and the transformation in the way that we want it and in the timing that we want it. But scripture presents a greater goal than simply improving society and a far higher prize than individual freedom here in this life. Jesus died on the cross for sin, and he rose again from the grave, not so that we could be free from earthly masters, but so that we could be free from something far worse, from sin and death and hell, so that we could have eternal life. Those who find this freedom in Christ, those who find this quality of life, are prepared to serve and exist with joy, even in the worst of circumstances, knowing that Christ and his kingdom and eternal life is ours. It is ours. So God's plan is not simply to make human society better instantly, but to replace what exists now in human society, to establish his kingdom and to install his king, his son Jesus Christ. And that has simply not happened yet in the way that it one day will. When Christ returns, society will be perfectly just because we will have a righteous king who rules in power from his throne. But now, in this day and age, it is through the gospel that those of us who are slaves to sin can be set free. Those of us who are spiritually in chains, who are dead in our sins and trespasses, can be made alive and set free and be prepared to enter his kingdom. Paul has told us about this powerful work of Christ back in chapter 1. That the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, in verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the message that is at the heart of both the identity and mission of the church. So hopefully that helps just a little bit to, to, to give you an understanding of why the scripture does not immediately command all masters to set their slaves free. And I hope that it helps you understand, likewise, the attitude of Scripture in general towards slavery and to appreciate what God is doing throughout history to take sinners and make them saints, to take injustice and oppression and move towards a perfect kingdom where there is a righteous reign and a righteous 
king. So hopefully that helps to start answering that question for you. The first question, how should we understand the biblical attitude towards slavery? But now we need to get into the text. So that's the longest introduction to a sermon I think I've ever given. But now we need to get into our text this morning. Our second question, how should we understand the meaning of this text for its original audience? And this is why you came here this morning, is to hear the text taught. So this brings us to chapter 3 and verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with, sincer- with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now keep in mind, as we mentioned earlier, over half of the Roman Empire at this point are slaves. And the church of Christ is exploding. There are many who are coming to saving faith, and many of them are slaves. But in the church, they are counted as brothers. We see that in chapter 1. As equals, chapter 3, verse 11. And imagine this, some who were socially and, and economically considered to be slaves were given places of leadership and authority in the church. So on Tuesday, you may have a believing master giving instructions to his servant about something to do with the crops or, or his small business in the city. But then as they gather to meet as the church, that slave is his elder, his pastor, and instructs him on how he needs to grow and change to be more like Christ and how he should fulfill and use his spiritual gifts within the church. So the church is this radically restructured community of believers. And so this raises a question. Does their new freedom in Christ, those who are slaves, and their new status in the church as equals, and some perhaps even as leaders, does this mean that they no longer have civil responsibilities? Do they no longer need to to respect and obey their bosses and submit to their earthly masters? Well, Paul's simple answer is no. They need to glorify God in their serving out of allegiance, not to their earthly master, but to Christ. And for those who are masters, they are to display their allegiance to Christ by treating those under their authority in a way that honors Christ. And and as we read through this text, we need to see that this subject would have been especially tricky for this specific church. And there's a reason for that. They actually had a situation going on in their body having to do with a slave and a master. When you get to chapter 4, you'll hear a name mentioned, someone who is coming uh, back to the church, who is being sent from Paul, and his name was Onesimus. He's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 9. And Onesimus was a member of this church, or was becoming a member of this church, rather. He was from Colossae. Onesimus was a slave who was not a believer, and he had run away from his master, whose name was Philemon. He had left Colossae, and he had gone to Rome. And in Rome, he had met a man named Paul. And you know what Paul did? Paul shared the gospel with him. He told him about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And Onesimus believed. Onesimus was converted. And he began serving with Paul and serving Paul there in Rome. And Paul had encouraged Onesimus, you need to go back because you actually took advantage of your master. And now as a Christian, as a believer, lying and stealing and breaking your word and violating contracts, things like that, That's not how Christians are to behave. You need to go back and make things right with Philemon. Philemon was a believing member of this church at Colossae. So Onesimus is coming back to the church as a new believer. And he's coming with Tychicus. And Tychicus has in one pocket the book of Colossians. And in the other pocket, he has the book of Philemon. This other small letter that we find in the New Testament written directly to Philemon, encouraging him to receive Onesimus back, to forgive him and to overlook his past sins, to receive him as a brother, as far more than just a servant. So this is sort of the setting that Paul's writing in. This issue of slaves and masters needed to be addressed. How should slaves and masters relate to one another in the church? And here's kind of the summary point for the text. Here's the summary point. In an imperfect world, a world that includes certain arrangements like slavery, in an imperfect world, the supremacy of Christ must be displayed in their behavior. In how they relate to one another, they must show that they believe Christ is supreme. They show this in their serving, in their trusting, and in fearing fearing Christ. That's kind of the three points for the text. Christ must be served. Christ must be trusted. Christ must be feared. And that is how the supremacy of Christ is displayed in their behavior. It's all rooted in a Christ-centered focus. First of all, because Christ is supreme, he must be served. We see that in verse 22 through 23. He encourages them to obey in everything 
their earthly masters, verse 22. And he says that they do this with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There's a Christward focus, a Christ-centered perspective in their serving. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So the focus here is on Christ. The gospel had not changed the fact that some of them in the body were slaves. But it does change how they live as slaves. For them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, like it says in chapter 1, verse 10, in order them to walk in Christ, like it says in chapter 2, verse 6, in order for them to seek the things that are above, chapter 3, verse 1, it meant obedience to their earthly masters. This obedience is to be in everything within the limits of God's law. But already, even as Paul gives this instruction to people like Onesimus and and, and others in his state, Paul is already subverting the socioeconomic structure of slave and master. Notice that he calls them earthly masters. The Greek word here is literally the same word for flesh. These are flesh and blood masters. They're just people, Paul says. They're just like me and you. And because they are earthly, fleshly masters, they are temporary masters. Paul minimizes the significance and the authority of human masters in this way and prepares to contrast these earthly masters with a heavenly master, with the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord and the word master are the same exact term in the Greek language. This word kurios is translated as Lord and master. He says, listen, I know you have earthly masters. Obey them because you ultimately love and trust and serve your heavenly master. And Paul dignifies these slaves by addressing them as people, having high expectations for them, not treating them as livestock, not treating them as unthinking, uneducated people, but treating them as dignified and having high expectations for them. As those who are redeemed, bought with the blood of Christ, he says that their obedience is to be sincere. It's to be marked with integrity. He says, not with eye service. You say, what does that mean? We don't use eye service in our language today. Basically, this means not just to work hard and do what you're supposed to do when you're being watched by your master. He's calling for sincere, consistent obedience that's not in any way manipulative or hypocritical. Um, several years uh, back, um, I, I once worked for a web development company, and it was a small business, and my boss really loved college basketball. And because of that, he was totally okay with us watching the NCAA tournament during work hours. It was a kind of an IT-type company, so everybody had multiple monitors. So it was not uncommon for us to have, you know, a project open on one screen and, you know, round two of the NCAA tournament open on the other screen. He was totally fine with that. Uh, but it was funny as I was watching that. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but in the, um, the NCAA website through CBS or something like that, um, there was a little button in the bottom of the screen. And it was titled the boss button. Have any of you guys seen that? Or am I the only one? You know what happens if you click on the boss button? Instantly, this spreadsheet pops up, this fake spreadsheet that has quarter one earnings and all these different kinds of things. And it's kind of a joke to point out that they know people are watching the games at work. But if the boss happens to poke his head in the room, you can click this button and it'll look like you're doing your job. And we all kind of laugh at that. But that's really the mentality of many, isn't it? We do what we're supposed to do when we're being watched. Kids, don't raise your hand. But sometimes when your parents walk out of the room, do you stop doing what they asked you to do? But then as soon as they come back in, you jump back like, oh, I am cleaning my room. See, I'm putting my toys away. That's human nature. And Paul says that slaves are not to serve their masters like that, with eye service, only when they're being watched. They are to serve consistently and with sincerity because they fear the Lord. So we don't just work, do our work occasionally when we're being watched. We're to know that our heavenly master is always watching. Our real boss, the only one whose performance review matters, is always watching. He says, so serve the Lord, not just to impress or please uh, your earthly master, not just doing the least amount possible to get by, but do your work in a way that pleases your heavenly master. In verse 24, he says, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're serving the Lord Christ. Christ, the Lord, your curios, your master. Christ, the Messiah, the King. It's his authority that we are under, and he must be obeyed. This phrase in verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ, is even better translated as an imperative. Serve the Lord Christ. Poor service to an earthly master, Paul tells us, reflects an unwillingness to glorify Christ in the position he has assigned us in this life. So if Christ is supreme, 
then our faithfulness in whatever is set before us is crucial. We seek to serve him because he is supreme. So Paul tells slaves that because Christ is supreme, he must be served. But secondly, he tells them that because Christ is supreme, he must be trusted. He must be trusted. Look in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the, for the Lord and not for men. And, and look at this, this motive. Look at this incentive and this comfort. Verse 24. That they are to do this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. They are to do their work as to the Lord and not unto men. Because it is from the Lord that they are ultimately seeking reward. It is his blessing that they are ultimately seeking And so trusting this, trusting that even though their earthly masters may not see or reward their faithfulness, Paul promises them Christ will see, and Christ will reward your faithfulness. And here's the amazing thing. Remember that in Rome, there was all these laws that governed how things worked for slaves. Slaves were not eligible to receive an inheritance in Roman society. It was illegal for that to happen. And what does Paul tell them? From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. What is this inheritance that he is referring to? Look back at chapter 1, verse 12. Actually, we'll start in verse 11. Paul prays for the church, including the slaves there. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That is a massive promise. If you are someone who in this life can receive no inheritance, and that is a massive promise for those of us who may be receiving an earthly inheritance because when you die, that earthly inheritance is gone. But Paul promises that when we die, this heavenly inheritance is ours. And it's ours through Christ. And Paul holds this out as motivation and says, as you serve, as you obey, trust in this promise. Christ must be trusted that his reward, his inheritance is enough. That his blessing is better than any human praise, any earthly promotion, any material reward here on this earth. Friends, this is redeemed logic. This is an eternal perspective shaped by the gospel that dignifies work and motivates obedience, and encourages faithfulness in the here and now, even if it's not seen or appreciated or rewarded by human authorities. Peter says something similar. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter says, listen, it's no credit to you if you suffer and you deserve it. But when you suffer and you're doing everything right, And it still turns out badly here for you. There is a credit there for you. God sees that. And you're following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself. And it will be worth it one day. This trust in a future reward empowers ongoing obedience, even when things are difficult. And it means that their labors, even their sufferings, are eternally meaningful and have value. And the supremacy of Christ is seen and displayed when we faithfully serve out of a trusting heart as we look to that future reward. Because Christ is is supreme, he must be served and he must be trusted. And then finally, because Christ is supreme, he must be feared. He must be feared. Verse 25, back in chapter 3, he says this, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. There's a warning here for disobedient slaves that God is not impartial. There is no bias with God. The scales are not tilted. 
God doesn't grade on a curve, and he does not excuse or justify sin because, well, you were the underdog in this situation, and so I'll let it slide. There's a warning here not to think that wrongdoing against their earthly masters is somehow justifiable, that God will sympathize and excuse unfaithfulness because he's partial. No, God will hold all people accountable for their actions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's a warning here. For, for those who are slaves, those who are servants. There's a promise and a motivation. Listen, God will reward you. There's an inheritance coming. And there's also a warning. Do not think that because of your situation, it excuses disobedience. God has one standard for judging behavior, and it is his perfect righteousness. So not only does the hope of reward motivate faithfulness, but so also does the fear of the Lord. And so because Christ is supreme, he must be feared. He must be feared. And this is displayed in our lives. There's also a warning for unjust masters. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters don't get away scot-free. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The point here is that God will hold them accountable as well. He will hold them accountable as well. A reminder that they too have a master is humbling because it puts them on the same footing as those who serve them. It says that you also have a master in heaven. The ultimate master for slaves is actually Christ. And the ultimate master for masters is also Christ. And we are all on the same footing when we come to the cross and when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No matter our earthly position, there is a judgment coming for all of us. And we are all accountable to a master. And so there's a warning here for masters and an exhortation to treat their servants justly and fairly out of fear for Christ. It says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, the fear of the Lord would have brought radical change to this slave and master relationship, change for both parties. This would have been a humbling reminder for them. It would have encouraged them to trust in future vindication, to trust that God will one day vindicate them, that he will repay, and that nobody gets away with anything in the end. Either sins are atoned for on the cross, or they are justly judged as sinners are punished for sin. So the fear of God would have led to a transformation of the way that slaves served and the way that masters exercised authority. If they refused to obey this command, they would have signaled a lack of fear of God. But fearing and obeying Christ as their heavenly master, whether a slave or whether a person in high position, this would have displayed the supremacy of Christ. Outsiders would have looked at this and said, something is different about these people. The way they relate to each other, the way they work, the way they lead, the way they exercise authority, the way they submit, something has brought a radical change. And that something is Christ. And when he is supreme, as Michael said in Sunday school, you know, Jesus changes everything and would have brought incredible change here in the church. And that's Paul's point, is that they are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If Christ is supreme, this is how they must behave. So a third question that I promised we would address just in our final minutes here. So we've addressed what's the general attitude of the Bible towards slavery? What is the meaning of this text in its original context? And then finally, how does this text address the issues in our hearts today? Because here's the bottom line. None of us in here today are slaves. And none of us in here today own slaves or have servants. So how does this text speak to us? I think there's definitely applications here for how we handle ourselves at work. And that's traditionally how this text is always applied. And that's good. And, and I trust that as we've read through it, you can already see, okay, here's some things I can take with me as I go to work tomorrow. Whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you manage people or you have a manager, whatever it is, um, that's pretty straightforward, and I hope that you will think about that. But I think there's more than that here. There's more than that. The reality is your heart and my heart, we have the same heart issues that those people had back then. And this text is not just telling them what to do. It's speaking to their hearts. And so this text needs to speak to our heart today. 
We need to come here to listen and, and with the assumption that this should probably challenge something in me. And so here's some things I think this text challenges. Number one, this speaks to the issue of pride in our heart. We hate being under authority. Submission in any context is hard. Whether it's on the job, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society, when the speed limit is lower than I think it should be, whatever it may be, whether the IRS has all these policies that I think are a joke, whatever it may be, it's hard for us to submit to authority in general. We naturally bristle and revolt against that. And none of us are slaves to earthly masters, but we are all people who are under authority. And how you and I respond to authority in our lives needs to be done in a way that displays the supremacy of Christ, that we're ultimately submitting to him. So do you have a problem submitting to authority? If Christ is supreme in your heart, then this text is a challenge to you to crucify your pride and embrace the place that God has put you in. To embrace that. I think this text also speaks to another issue in our heart. The issue of, of power and how we, how we crave power and how we are often tempted to abuse power. None of us here today own slaves. None of us have servants who live in our homes. But many of us have some measure of authority. If you're a parent, you have authority. Many of you have authority in the workplace. Some of you have authority even in the church. But how you express and use your authority must be marked by impartiality, fairness, justice, and grace. Because no matter how big a deal you think you are, you have a master in heaven. And ultimately, you will answer to him. And that should be a humbling thing. And it should be a warning to us to keep us from craving power and misusing power. Godly authority, the, 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 the biblical godly exercise of authority should bring blessing to other people, should not bring oppression or injustice. One day we will all answer to our master in heaven. And so that needs to shape how we exercise authority here in this earth. I think this text also challenges what many of us have in terms of a worldly perspective. Aren't we often short-sighted? You know, we focus on what's today and maybe tomorrow and maybe what happens in this season of life, but we often focus on the moment to the detriment of forgetting eternity. Our perspective is too short-sighted. Paul encourages these people to have an eternal perspective, to remember the future reward and to remember a future judgment, and that that is supposed to shape how they live here and now in the moment. But we often forget about eternity. And what that means is that we often tend to overvalue, it, um, overvalue earthly rewards. We put too much stock in a paycheck, in recognition from other people, in how much success we can have here in this life, how far we can go, how many of our dreams can be fulfilled. We put way too much stock in that. We overvalue earthly reward, and we severely undervalue eternal reward. We undervalue the inheritance that is ours in Christ. We undervalue what is coming one day. Because of that, our perspective is worldly, we're short-sighted. We become overly concerned that other people are pleased and not concerned enough that God is pleased. Let this text this morning challenge your perspective to be shaped by eternity and not to be short-sighted. Similarly to that, I think this text challenges the impatience that lies in our hearts. It challenges our impatience. We crave earthly justice and we want it now. We crave earthly rewards and we want them now. We struggle to wait for God's perfect justice. We struggle to wait for God's eternal reward. You know, faith in scriptures is often equated with waiting on the Lord. Perhaps God wants to challenge your heart this morning to be patient, to not grow weary in your well-doing, because in due season you will reap, Paul says to the Corinthians, if you faint not. So what's the solution to all these issues in our heart? If we, are, if we struggle with authority, if, if we tend to abuse and misuse the authority we have, if we are short-sighted and have a worldly perspective and wrestle with impatience, what's the solution to these issues? Well, in short, again, here's the message of Colossians. It's embracing Christ as supreme. 
Embracing Christ as supreme will humble us. He has and deserves all power and authority. He must be in all things preeminent. Embracing Christ as supreme corrects our perspective. We, we come to see that he must be pleased, that his judgment will bring reward for the righteous and retribution for the wicked. And so we set our mind on things above, not on things here on the earth. Embracing Christ as supreme will encourage and motivate us. It will dignify all of our serving and energize faithfulness because we are doing it for the Lord. So are there areas in your life in which Christ is calling you to be faithful? Let me encourage you to serve him. Serve him faithfully. Are there ways you need to trust in the future reward and stop measuring everything in your life in immediate terms? Trust him. Trust his promises. Look to the things above and to the kingdom that is coming. Are there ways in which your life needs to be controlled by the fear of God? Then fear him. Fear him. Look to Christ, not as the cute baby who's in the manger, not as the humble suffering servant who doesn't reply when people falsely accuse him and say unkind things and even crucify him. Look to the Christ who is resurrected and exalted, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who is coming in glory and with power to judge the wicked and to rescue his people. Look to Christ and fear him. Fear him. Let's seek to display the supremacy of Christ by obeying and trusting and fearing our master in heaven. By his grace, we've been given the joyful privilege, all of us, of being his slaves, his servants. So let's give ourselves fully to our master's plans and purposes so that his glory can be made known in and through our lives here on this earth. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, um, we are challenged. It's difficult sometimes for us to wrestle with these things. We are humbled. And I pray, God, that today that you would use your word to expose the things in our hearts that need to change. Our attitudes, our pride, our unbelief, our impatience, I pray, Lord, that you would make us a humble and a faithful and a joyful people who serve you, who trust you, and who fear you. And Lord, if there's any here today uh, among us who do not know you, I pray that they would hear loudly and clearly from, from our church this morning that the freedom they need is not economic freedom. It's not a social change. The freedom they need most of all is the freedom from sin, death, a freedom that only comes through Christ. There's no civil rights movement in the world that can grant us what our most desperate need is, and that is salvation. That only comes through you, Jesus. And I pray that any here today who don't know you and haven't received this gift of salvation, that today they would confess their sins against you, their rebellion against you, that they would bow the knee to you as their Lord and trust in you as their Savior. And so join us in following Jesus and serving him. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.